Welcome, Bernard. Thank you for joining us on 321. No kidding. I appreciate you being here. Uh, folks, for my audience, I'm with Bernard Zeitler today. And Bernard and I actually just made acquaintance in the last 48, 72 hours online. He's already my idol with a lot of advocacy for problem gambling and heightening awareness as well as um, a significant amount of clean time that I'll let him tell you about. So Bernard, do you mind introducing yourself? No problem, I'm Bernie, I'm a compulsive gambler. My last bet was November 21st, 2007, after going to the first QA meeting I'd ever went to. I left out of the meeting, had heard about people that, had, that had attempted suicide, people that spent prison time, all these different things. And when I walked out, even though I had passed the test with, with my lying skills intact and trying not to get, get uh, very many answers right. Uh, some, of, some, some people will know what I'm talking about when I say that. I passed. And I walked out of there and I got a little, I went, got out to my car and I thought to myself, well, you know, not really that bad. So I drove out, went to, went to the Speedway, which was about a block away, walked in, put down a dollar, bought a dollar scratch off ticket. And as I'm walking out the door, I said, oh crap, I am as bad. Mm. Because the stuff I had heard, had me realizing that it was a problem. Um, one of the fellows, uh, a lot of people out there might might have known him. He's been on TV and stuff by the name of Mike. He wrote a book called Never Enough, but he spent time in, in the state prison for his embezzling from his clients' trust funds. He was an attorney. For me, he's become one of the, one of the guys that really kind of got me going. So I've been involved in a lot of things over the years, but but uh, having a background in social work and stuff and a number of other backgrounds. I won't go into great detail, but but um, after realizing I was almost going to lose my job, fought hard to get my job back, kept my job, ended up suicidal depression, spent time in an adult psych. When I got out, went to a number of different groups to try to get help for my gambling, which at the time I hadn't admitted until I got to the first GA meeting, which was, like I said, December, no, November 21st. 2007. I get, get confused. There's a couple other things there coming in. But um, at that time, I had said, you know, I'm going to start writing little blurbs. So I got onto online and there was a page that you could write, associated content, and it became Yahoo Voice. I went through the process and I wrote little blurbs for a few years. Well, I ended up divorced. I left the job that after three years of selling my addiction while in recovery, because I was working at a convenience store, was one of two jobs I had. I ended up with divorce and remarrying, and when I remarried, I was encouraged to take some of that writing and put it into a book. So I've got several books out there um, that are about recovery. And one of the, one of the things that I struggled with early on was people kept saying, "Why don't you just stop?" And when I wrote the book, one of the things that came up in there is the idea of everybody has something they won't stop until they get done. Most people go to a restaurant, they want to complete the whole meal. So I came up with something called the one fry theory. And I explained it to, explained it to people who don't understand gambling like this. Go into McDonald's, buy the full meal, you know, french fries, everything. Take one fry out of the bag, eat it, leave everything else behind and walk out. <laughs> if you can do that, then you can tell me to just stop. You can just stop. And there are people that have said, I can do that. Well, I said, what's your favorite thing? And they'd say fishing, or they'd say they'd say another restaurant. And I'd say, 
But you go in there, you order the food, and you walk out. Or you go all the way to where you're going to go fishing and then leave. Nobody starts on a process and stops until they're done, until they've gotten to the end. And when I got them to understand that, I got a lot of people going, um, kind of backing off on me. So that was one of the ways I had to, to explain it to them. People think it's easy, recovery. I'm 12 years out, and I, I still get urges every now and then. But, wow. um, but that's, a, that's a strong point right there that I want to make um, sure everybody heard. So after 12 years, you still get urges. I get urges every now and then when things don't go so well. Right At, at the moment, I'm waiting on having something done for my, le- my right knee after having something done with my left knee only a month or so, a couple of months ago. That kind of stuff kind of gets under your skin. Then you throw in that they now have this COVID thing and all the, all the health issues they have. So I'm a high-risk person for that. Those kind of things throw stress in, and it's easy to see that if you get stressed, if you're not on your toes, you'll go back. So, so, that, so, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. You, you said a lot of really good stuff, really condensed. So I just want to hit on a couple things. So your gambling method of choice was scratch-offs and lottery tickets, if I understand you. Scratch-off lottery tickets, yeah. We have a friend in common online, and he's been blowing up about how the Midwest has the scratch-off tickets with no age verification, and um, it's just one of those gambling issues that is so easy to obtain, and it was one of my early, early days, my belief. Kansas and New York didn't pay as well as Connecticut, so I didn't go to the, didn't use the scratch-offs as well, so we upgraded, you know, to casino land. And then you also, you mentioned the 20 questions. Are you okay if I just kind of explain what you meant about passing and yes. failing the test? We, we yeah. did do an episode on the 20 questions. And if I heard you correctly, I understood you to say, when you say pass the test, you mean you didn't answer seven questions as a yes. No, passing means I got seven. Oh, okay. That's and why I wanted some clarity. I, I tried to lie not to get seven. Gotcha. And even with lying, I ended up with around nine. Now that said, and this is something that that, that really will get get you thinking. A few weeks later, I sat down with him and I opened up my mind a little bit, because in order to lie to myself and, and be able to say no, I had to pigeonhole the answer. Um, have you ever? Committed or considered committing a crime. Example with that one. Okay. Now, you may not have gotten arrested for it, but how many times did you steal time from your family? Ah. That's a crime. Um, All of these things, if you broaden the concept of the crime, or you broaden the concept of the word, what you'll find is that Anybody that says that they can't, they can't, that's a compulsive gambler says they didn't answer L20 yes, I encourage them to look back at it and broaden, broaden it. Um, because have you ever considered, considered, considered suicide is one of the other questions. And here's the thing. For me, that was, that was when I couldn't, couldn't say no to because I spent time in adult psych. For right. suicidal depression. However, in looking at the question, even before that, even on my good days, I committed 
and and consider committing suicide by the fact that I was gambling. Financial suicide, um, social suicide, relationship suicide. How many different forms of suicide are there that nobody thinks about? And That's those are those are things that when I, when I was answering them first, I pigeonholed every answer. That's and three weeks later, I expanded the thought. Well, that's, that's impressive that you did that in, in three weeks. Um, I can remember being asked in, in my first GA meeting at a place of semi-surrender, because um, I had gone in, my, I'd gone in my past, but I didn't, I don't even remember how many I answered correctly, but through working the steps, which is part of why I make it part of my show, we do, you know, a step episode once a month and I just pretend I'm in a room with a bunch of compulsive gamblers but through doing um, journaling and the step work you brought up the question about committing a crime and I had never thought of committing a crime but floating checks just to you know play the money game that's illegal and and you're exactly right the more we learn in recovery I think the more we understand all the diversity in line those questions so I appreciate you bringing that up and that's the thing that the one thing about that is that a lot of times I don't know about you, but as a compulsive gambler in the early days, now I said three days, you know, a few days later, I, or weeks later, I broadened the, the, the terms, but it wasn't because I wanted to, <laughs> I was forced into it. I was talking to somebody in my field, my background of social work. One of the things we do is we do interviews of sorts of people and we have to look at things a little broader. Well, they were asking questions of me and I was asking questions of them and we we're talking a little bit about something to do with, with the social work field and how to address somebody that has an addiction. And it, we weren't talking about gambling or anything, we we're talking about addiction in general. And we got to talk about how you get them to open up and realize something. The person said, broaden the understanding of a word that you give have them define it and then broaden it. And that's what triggered it. And if you'd have seen me when I figured it out, I was crumpled on the floor. I was a mess because at that point, not only did I answer 20 out of 20, but I answered 20 out of 20 without any hesitation, without any opportunity to fight back. Um, my higher power had me beaten down to the point where I had to start working on stuff. And at that point I said, I gotta help, I gotta help people understand compulsive gambling. So that was the road that started me on some things I did that I've done since then. Well, and that was, that was exactly what I was going to ask you next. So you mentioned a book and you were kind enough to send me the video interview. And that was Mike Burke, I think on that interview with you. Um, and I'll do my best. I'm still working on my website. It's evolving, but I'd like to get that stuff posted to share because there was some great content in there. So you've written books, you're engaged on Facebook. Tell us some of the other things you're doing to spread the word and awareness. Cause I know it was important to you to be on here because March is gambling awareness month. March being gambling awareness month, um, kind of brought back this year, kind of brought back how it all started for me as far as getting involved in, in awareness. And what, what, what happened is basically they were having something called a sudden a substance abuse uh, substance use, I can't remember what it, what it stands for, but SUD, it's, a, it's an addiction thing. And then they also had something specific to gambling. 
Well, they asked me for the gambling one because they were looking for people that are early, were early in recovery to do a testimonial. Some of you had three, maybe four years at most. They asked me to speak and I got up in front of it, in front of these people and I just laid everything out. And from that time on, I've done speaking engagements. I've been, been on TV and radio a few times, been involved in some articles in, in the paper locally. But the whole process of getting online was one of those things where somebody said, well, there's groups online for gambling. And they got me involved in it. That, that's how it all started. Um, it was 20, 2014, 2015, that, that um, I was made aware of the Facebook groups that were closed and that kind of thing. I tried several different forms of Facebook groups. And because one of the things that I, that I realized early, early on was that I'm broke. <laughs> and yet I have people telling me, buy this book, get this book, get that book. And I'm like, where am I getting the money to get the dang book? Mm -hmm. um, you have people get, say, get to a meeting. All of this stuff came into play. And, and back, the, back in the day, before, before I got on Facebook, I, was, I had a vision of, getting it so that there was treatment for people, but there was also virtual meetings where people that worked in professions where if they if their gambling came, came out, it could cost them a the job. The anonymity aspect of why the anonymity is there for, for Gamblers Anonymous. At that time, I was thinking I would be using Skype in, I think it was July of 2017, right after I got on, into the Facebook groups and after I tried a few other things, trying to get, and I, my books are, are basically free on PGHR and also on the website that I've, that I've set up for PGHR. And they're free for a reason because I was broke. And I imagine a lot of people that first three years, not only are they broke, but they've got people saying, I'm not giving you a penny. <laughs> exactly. You've got people taking control of everything for you. You say you want to get a book and they're thinking a book, of, a book of scratch house or in my case, and other people, a book, oh, yeah, you're going to go get one that tells you how to play poker better or do better on slot. They aren't thinking, book to work on recovery. The people around me were. That's and, very generous of you. And for that purpose, they're all, they're all um, digitally online. They're all in a PDF format on, on, the, on the page, but they're, but they're closed pages. And they're for compulsive gamblers only. If I let them out there for everybody, it wouldn't be doing the purpose it was meant for. The purpose for it is to help them work through a process. And the first one, how to win is a high roller of losing your shirt, is where I basically go through how everything fits together, mentally, psychologically, um, the physical aspects of it, all the different things with that. Because that's something that when I started out, I didn't put two and two together. I knew it. I had a degree that told me what was going on. I knew it, but my gambling mind didn't care, <laughs> you know, and the second, the second one that came out, the second significant one was one that helped me get through those first few, few months. Um, you know that they have a little blue book. It's called a day at a time, right? A day at a time has the same thing over and over and over again. So after about a year or two, some people haven't memorized it. it. really doesn't mean much to them. The second book was about the 30-day detox, which is a process I had to go through in order to stop my gambling while I was dealing with working in an environment where I sold my very addiction. 
And the first example that I can give somebody is this. I worked in a convenience store that sold scratch-offs. People came in to buy them. When they came in to buy them, and I knew that they had a problem, I'd say the next one's a winner. And they would slow down on, on their purchasing. I don't know if you know why, but I know why. How many of us gamblers, when we lose, say the next one's going to be a winner? Uh, it's in your head. Yeah. The other part of it is this. Every time I thought about gambling early on, this store had the most nasty, disgusting, raw sewage type of bathroom. So every time I thought about gambling, I decided I had to go to the bathroom. After about a week or two, the thought of gambling was connected with that smell, with that ah. presence. And that's basically some stuff I had to do in order to get through working for three years, selling my addiction while staying in recovery. How did you feel about, we talk a lot about um, cash, you know, the feeling of cash being a trigger. So how was it, I mean, selling the tickets obviously is bad enough, but how did you feel being a person handling so much cash? Did that impact you as well? It did. That's one of the reasons why I used bathroom thing. Oh, uh, okay. Because I would, ca- I would cash somebody out with a big bin. Mm. And what's the first thing you do when you see somebody that wins and you're a compulsive gambler? You want to play. You want uh-huh. and- to recycle the wins so you can win more. And you and having been behind the counter, I was watching watching the patterns. And I was and as gamblers, as as human beings, we look for patterns. And the thing is, gambling is all the gambling addiction is all about our mind telling us there's a pattern there. Now in recovery, one of the things that I had to do, like I said, the smell was one thing, but the day at time day at a time one, look, like I said, it gets old after a while. I had to change some ways of thought. So what I did is I started with thoughts, with a thought for the day type of thing. I get up in the morning. The first thought I ever had was there are millions of people out there that are in recovery, that are doing well, which is decades. When you put them all together, corporately, it's decades of clean time every minute, every second. Corporately, decades, if not more, of clean time. Now, there's also a lot of people out there, like, like me, that are compulsive gamblers. Now I'm in recovery, but back when I was gambling, I get, there, there were decades, there, there were people out there, the same number of people out there gambling as there are in recovery. And, and what I basically said, there's decades of, of my misery, decades of recovery where I have hope. Got up in the morning and said, which one do I want to be a part of right now? And for the first, I'd say, month or so, that worked re- really well. But that got old. So then I'd get up and I'd start coming up with a thought first thing in the morning or when I go into bed that I'd sleep on and in the morning the first thought I'd have would be a thought that would be recovery-related that was directly related to me. With PGHR, which is a Facebook page, Problem Gambling, Hope, and Recovery, there's also a group called RAP, R-A-P, Relapse Awareness Prevention. And that is based on the 30-day detox. People will post their thought for the day, and then if you get an urge, if you start out your day and you want to have a thought, you go there, you look at that. After a while, we've got a couple of people that beat me to the punchline. There's, there's a person in England that they will put up a thought for the day at 3 o'clock in the morning because that's actually their, when they're first getting up. They're five hours ahead of me. <laughs> and I'll put up a thought. But you put up a thought, and you get a thought in your head, 
And you start your day that way, and it sticks with you all day. Once you get into the habit, just like patterns, you get into a process, it starts to stick. And for me to stay clean, that's what I have to do. I have to have a thought first thing in the morning, no matter how much pain I'm in, because I'm in need, no matter how much crap is going on around me, that says, which, which direction am I going to go today? Love a day at a time, but like I said, after a while, I know people that memorized it by the third year. Wow. They didn't even have to open up the book to read it. They could tell you what day, what, for each day they had it memorized, what day it was and everything. And for me, I, I, I don't care what day it says in the book. I just open up to one if I'm, I'm going to do that and read it. Because otherwise, it becomes route. And when things become route and pattern or a habit, they become a problem. My gambling became a problem because it was a habit that after I got done working, I'd sit down for two or three hours with scratch-off tickets and maybe go to the ATM two or three times and empty out empty out the maximum of the, uh, the ATM. I'm going to be very clear, like honest with you, because I, and I should have told you this off air, but my, my beliefs in recovery aren't like I share them with everybody, but I'm not saying my way is the right way. Okay. So I want to kind of say that before I kind of chat about some of the things you just said. Um, so with the one day at a time book, my question is, so I read it every day and I post it into my groups uh, for those who don't have access. I love your point about, you know, the newbies don't have money per se. They haven't cleaned up their act. But I'm curious for you, because I, I find it this way, how I looked at things on March 12th, my first year in recovery versus my second year in recovery versus my third. Like the words are the same, but the message to me sometimes feels it, different. It changes. Yeah. I I, I would never say that one way is the right way. And um, I hear a lot of people say, get to a GA meeting. And I know people that have been to a GA meeting and it wasn't their thing. Um, I've also been part of Celebrate Recovery. I've been, I've been in smart, smart Recovery. I've been in all these different recovery programs, not all of them specifically to gambling, GAs being specific to gambling. But here's the thing. The steps are the same no matter what program you go to. The recovery steps and the unity steps are all the same across the board no matter what you call it. So and my I point to people is, is the wrapper the wrapper doesn't matter. It's what's inside. True, true. And I think in some of the literature that I went over that you gave me, you mentioned some of those other ones. Like I don't know what celebrate recovery is. And my audience probably doesn't know what smart recovery is. I'm a little familiar. So can you expand on those two for me? Celebrate Recovery is basically a, um, a religious organization. They have, they have a meal at the beginning then they, where everybody gets together and they start out by having a, having a meal in the beginning. Then they go into community time, celebrating and worshiping God, maybe have a testimony. Then they break up into groups and talk about different topics. So basically you, you'll have 75 to 100 people in some, some of them that I've been to. And they break off into groups of 5 to 10. Wow or 15 or 20, depending on how many are there. Early on, they're smaller. But it's basically kind of like going to a rock concert and then getting, getting to break off into a little group. It was, it was good for a bit, but the problem, problem for me was nobody could relate to the gambling because everybody else was drugs and that stuff. 
and they work with hangups and, and, and that kind of stuff too. So basically you've got people in there from pretty much every spectrum of it, which goes to the point that 12 st the, the steps of recovery are to be put into every part of your life. That's why they're, they're kind of broad. Okay. Um, recovery Unanimous was a little different in, in that they also were a spiritual one, but they, they focused on working through the Bible for their recovery. Okay. Um, there's, there's one that's, that's based on the Koran. There's one based on, you can go out there and you can find a, a recovery program from, from pretty much every faith, including in, uh, Hindi and Muslim, all of it. It's all there with the different religions. But the thing is, smart recovery in a lot of ways is the outlier because it doesn't do a whole lot with, with religion. And it doesn't do a whole lot with spirituality. It's more of the mindset type of type of focus. I, I encourage people to go where it's going to help you. Realize that the steps are the steps, no matter how they're worded. Some of the some of them may have only four steps, but they cover all twelve steps. I gotcha. So you've used the term a couple times, and you said that you're in recovery. So do you mind sharing what your recovery looks like? I think I heard that you start the day off with positive messaging. Um, I think I heard that you participate in Zoom meetings. You give back, which is step 12 work. So in your words, what do you call your recovery? My recovery is staying focused on right now. Um, in the case of where I'm at right now, I'm sometimes a little embarrassed because I, I don't like taking a whole lot of credit because in, in the process of step one, two, and three, you're turning over everything to your higher power. Okay. So anything that I do has to do with my higher power guiding me through the day. I'm not, and I, and I realize I'm not alone. Zoom started because there was somebody that said, I can't get to a meeting. They shared the Zoom app, in turn, because they tried to get me in Zoom, I tried to get me in Zoom, and we did different things, and we learned as we went. As, as you go, you learn things to, keep, to help keep the anonymity, that kind of thing. Because Zoom's actually, you know, encrypted, medical grade encryption, which means that it's pretty secure. One of the problems that come about is that if you put it out on, on, on the, uh, on if you put it out in a way where everybody gets a hold of it, then everybody that wants to get you to gamble, everybody that wants to make fun of you, and everybody that's looking for recovery can all find it and get into it without any trouble. Unlike where meetings where you have an address, you have to do something to get there. With Zoom, you just tap a link and you're in. So maybe so, that's why I haven't had that experience, because that's blowing my mind. So you've had some interactions where people are trying to crash to be obnoxious? Early on, we had people that were coming in when the Zoom room wasn't being used for gambling and plotting how they were going to get names to give to the online gambling industry for marketing purposes. Wow. You also had people that came in that made fun of people. They, they would come into the meetings. There were others that would do it behind the scenes. They, they come in and they act like they're a gambler, but they were looking for a story. I had somebody actually um, get outed because somebody local to the, to the place they were at came into the meeting, professed to be a gambler, 
did not talk most of the time. What happened is basically they were listening. They got a story. They took the name out of it. They created a story that was kind of a hodgepodge of two people, but there were key elements of it that outed this person, and they almost lost their job over it. So I started working on tight, tightening it up, and that's why you won't see it. See the ones that that are connected with PGHR posted all over the place. But that's kind of kind of the the concept of it. Um, over the time, we've had people that have come in, they've seen the stuff, and they've gone out and done it done it their own way. What happened? What happens every time that they do that? PGHR seems to be growing, which is amazing to me. When I when I started the page, I said, "Well, we'll have forty five people in two years. When and if we ever get to eight hundred, a thousand, seven, eight, nine, ten years down the road." Then we might consider doing something that we're as a fellowship, try to get GA involved. Try to, GA didn't want anything to do with it when we kind of got to that point. From Yelling, Hoping, Recovery, the page, the page on Facebook is own, has only been around since December 29th, 2017. So 1,138, I think is right now. Considering that I haven't advertised it, people are finding it with ease. Also, some of the hotlines for the states, we've gotten referrals for the page has gotten people sent there from the state hotlines, not not so much GAs, but the state hotlines. I've gotten referrals. I've got gotten people that said the California hotline told us about you. Wow. How they know about? I don't know how how they know about PGHR. I don't know. I like that spin um, on people sharing information better than what you were just talking about, and people taking the information. And here's, and here's the thing: Zoom at present when it started. It was, it was less than 20 people. It was 20 people or less on December 29th. Within a month, it was well over 200. Wow. Which blew my mind. I didn't expect that because I wasn't saying anything to anybody. Wasn't broadcasting anything. Had, still don't. Occasionally, I'll see something on one of the other, somebody on the other, one of the other pages and say, relapse again. And I'll say, why don't you try this page? And they come and they know the story and stuff. They end up, they end up <clears throat> doing a little better. We've got people that have made some time. The other thing is, right now, the page has at least 50, if not more, countries involved. It's not about numbers. The thing is, from the beginning, it was never about numbers. It was about getting the word out there. With Problem Gambling Awareness Month, it's good to get the word out there because PGHR, Problem Gambling Hope and Recovery, also now has a website that I try to get the members to know about because basically if they sign up on the website, now they go through the same screening process and the only way that they get approved quickly is if I know that they're from, from one of the sites that, that they've already been screened. But if somebody comes in blindly, unless, I know, unless I've had contact with them, they go through the same screening process through email before they can get in. They get into the members part. There's the public part of it and then the members part of it. And when they come into the members part of it, they basically have all the books, as much of the resources that they would have on the page, there's an app associated, associated with it. That app allows them to message just between gamblers. Oh, anywhere nice. It allows them to do chat. It allows them to do almost everything that Facebook allows to do. But you don't have the possibility of putting it on your public page by accident. You keep going back to, and, and this is me getting to know you, um, you're talking a lot about awareness, and then you're also talking a lot about protecting people's um, identity, identity and stuff. So 
for me, my mission, and like, I didn't really talk about it. Like when I went to treatment three years ago, not many people really knew. Like I didn't even tell my boss at the time, for example, a couple of my friends knew. Um, now I'll tell anybody because it's just part of, it's part of what I'm trying to build with no kidding. And it's part of my strategy with awareness. So tell me how you feel about now that I've kind of shared my perspective, like the stigma versus anonymity versus you spreading the message. Tell me how you feel about that all bundled up. Here's the thing. Anonymity is in the community. Anonymity also is the decision of the individual. There are people out there that they're not going to want people to know. There'll come a point where they will, but in those first two, three years, there's a lot of people that do not want, you know, they don't want to be exposed as this person that did this or that. Um, we have a person that's on the page that's sitting in a federal prison right now for their gambling, but they want people to know now. So they send messages each month telling how they're doing in prison, and they're spreading the word of recovery in prison to people that have other addictions that are discovering they had a gambling problem too. Oh, that's awesome. So for me, me, the anonymity is a decision people have to do on their own. Somebody comes up to me, I'll tell them I'm a problem gambler. There are enough people out there that if I walk into a place that I don't know anybody, I have to be careful because somebody probably knows who I am. So I, that, that keeps me clean because I can walk into a convenience store now, get stuff. And if I start thinking about the gambling, I'm looking around, do I know anybody? Right. And then goes through my head, do those people know somebody I know and somehow be able to connect with that? So for me, that's because I go back to gambling. So it's an accountability piece. It's accountability. I like that. But like, like I said, it, it's, it's a process over time. There are people that will never want their identity revealed. There are other people like yourself, Mike, um, a number of people I can think of that are more than happy to put their name out there. Arnie's another one, Arnie W. Yeah. I mean, he's been out there a long time. So I was kind of curious about when, well, it's it's a two-part question. So like when in your journey, you use like the two to three year milestone as kind of the comfort level, which I agree with because that was about my point. So I'm wondering when your sweet spot was where you started to talk about it. And then my follow-up question to that is, did you gain any value from the difference between when you were anonymous versus now that you're open? Was there any personal value for you? The value for me is that if there's somebody else who's suffering, it has nothing to do with whether it's, whether it's good or bad for me. I've had people that, that have cussed me out once they found out that I was a gambler. My sweet spot for when, when it all went, went, uh, went public, my sweet spot, I didn't have a choice but to, to be, but to be open. And early on, that hurt. As time went on, I said, the hell with it. I apologize <laughs> for, the, for the use of the word. But, you know, I can't worry about what other people are going to think. Right. Because my recovery is my recovery. I can't tell somebody else how to do their recovery. They can't tell me how to do mine. Ultimately, it's an example. It's, there's a serenity. And lately, I've been doing the serenity prayer with a we aspect. Because when, we're, when I'm in the meeting, we can't change anything. Do you think that it becomes easier? And I know I'm kind of going off the path a little here, but do you think it gets easier for 
the compulsive gambler to be open once some of the shame and the guilt is lifted? Like, do you think that that's why they try to protect themselves a little? I think shame and guilt has a, has a big part to do with it. One of the other things that, that um, stuck with me is that I've, I've met people that, that are early in recovery and it's less the shame and guilt than it is the idea that they're going to be in treatment for the rest of their life. Mm. There's a point at which the treatment becomes more of a friendship, more of a community. And early on, it's not so much about the community as it is about, I've got to be here for me. Right. And there are people that have pushed people into meetings and it doesn't always go well. Court order doesn't always go well because somebody tell, you know, you tell a child not to do something and that they have to do something else. And as soon as that is off the table, they go and do what they're not supposed to do. Yeah. It has to be an individual decision in my mind. And that in most cases, that individual decision comes in so many different ways. I don't know what it was that got you into recovery. You know, whether it was something, an event, or whether it was something that simply at some point you triggered and you said, I got to do something about it. I've heard, I've heard people say, I don't even know why I started recovery. I just simply knew I needed help. He had a relapse. So the first time I was in Kansas City and I had lost my rent money and I was out there by myself. I had just started a new job. I wasn't even there a month and I had racked up the credit card. Like the bill was even bigger for the credit card than it was my rent. So that was the first time. Um, and I, again, I knew, knew about GA from my past. I was in a gambling study in my 20s. Uh, it's always been there. I just chose to not do anything about it. And then my relapse was, gosh, well over a year. And it was getting bad again. And my personality had really changed. Like people at work thought I was either using or I was caught up with a guy. Like they couldn't tell. My whole personality had changed. Um, and then I was in monstrous debt. Um, all the emotions and the shit that comes with being at that place. Um, so I knew that I was going into treatment. And I don't recommend what I'm about to say, but. If I'm being fully transparent, I, you know, like I told my family and stuff, and I had had a free cruise from the casino, probably cost me what, a million dollars or whatever, but this free $800 cruise. And um, I was going to take that cruise and gamble and party like a rock star and then go to treatment. And that's the way I did it. So I kind of had my goodbye. The cruise was kind of my farewell. Um, and my mother and stepfather were on the, on the cruise and it took me till day five to tell mom. But, um, so I, I came back from the cruise and essentially got into treatment that week. I'm going to tell you something that's going to probably going to shock you. I looked at where I started gambling. Most people think it's when you, when you go to a casino or when you go to a gambling establishment or that kind of thing. When I traced it back it was marbles on the playground. Yeah. Because it's not about the money, it's about the action. That's 100% um, true. And as far as the going out with, in flames, when, I was, when, when uh, this whole event happened, I gambled like a, I won't even say. And that was what pushed me into the, men, into the mental state that I was, that I was in that end up in Belt site. Mm. So 
basically I knew I had a problem. I knew I needed help. But I was going to do everything I could to either destroy myself before I got there or make it so bad that I had to go. Right. It, you know, it's interesting. I was just sitting here and the two other, I think I've only interviewed two other gamblers, like specific, and how much the stories cross over, right? All three of you um, ha have said things like going to the, the psych ward and, you know, the, the punishing and the buildup and like all this stuff. So um, I'm calling that out mostly so that whoever's listening, wherever listening, you know, it just kind of reiterates to them that they're not alone. Like that's part of why we share our message. There, there is no way that anybody out there should feel that they're alone. Um, since going on Facebook, I found out that it's not just my little community. But even in recovery, I thought it's all about my little community. The community I'm in, you know, I'm in this little town, this, in this town, that's where the gambling is. And maybe it goes over to this town or that town, but it's not everywhere. It's everywhere. And... <laughs> As time went on, it's everywhere. Like I said, 50 countries and several territories are in, in on the page. And I've talked to people that were in the industry and had a problem. Now, these are the things. All of that stuff plays into it. Yeah. Our addiction is so normalized that nobody sees it until... It's no longer normal right. until you're at, in prison, insanity, and death. Um, I know people, story, story local, local casino, okay? They had a guy that was, quote, unquote, fell from the roof of the parking structure. Now, I happened to know somebody who was on the security, and he told me a little story about that. And now, the, the story was that he fell off the structure, okay, which makes it not sound so bad. Here's the thing. Security cameras watched him climb over the edge several times, hold on to the edge, pull himself back. You know, that decision, am I going to do it? Aren't I going to do it? The last time, he lost grip and he's screaming help before he even, before he even falls. Uh. So he couldn't decide one way or the other. And the last time, not only was it that he wanted to, but he wanted to live too. And he just lost his grip. He got, got his strength got weakened from the number of times he'd gone over and back, over and back. Uh. And nobody did anything until he fell to the concrete below. Wow. I don't know if he's alive or not, but, but that speaks volumes because at the end of my rope, I had the reason I ended up in the psych is I had so many different plans how I was going to do it and it was going to look like an accident. Yep. I mean, it was winter. I slip on the ice. I hit a tree. Boom. I'm gone. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, because um, then we have the life insurance to cover all the shit when the damage we did. I, at least that's how I looked at it. The, the, the way I looked at it is they were better off without me. And whatever happened, I mean, it was going to solve their problems. To, uh, and I came to the realization at the end, the reason I ended up in Bill Seg is that it didn't solve their problems and it certainly didn't solve mine. Right. It only, it only made things worse for them. And 
I would be stuck with that memory in everybody that, that, that knew me for the rest of my life. They would know I was the guy that, and I had family members that, that committed suicide, cousins that committed suicide. I still, I know good things about them, but the thing that sticks out the most is that last moment. Wow. A lot of good nuggets you put out there, Bernie. I appreciate it. Um, before we go, is there any final thoughts that you want to share and, and anything that I might not have asked or that we might have not covered? I think we covered pretty much everything. The only thing I'd like to share is that if somebody needs help, they can reach out to me. Feel free to share that email. If they reach out to me, I will do whatever I can to help them. If they don't want to be on Facebook, but they'd like to get involved in having the Zoom meetings and stuff, let me know. I'll get them the list. Okay. Um, family members, reach out to me too. If there's family members that are, that are having difficulty with it, if at all possible, I'll send you a copy of that first book so you can help understand it. Because it's basically a workbook to help understand. Because I don't remember anybody at the beginning of my recovery that understood a dang thing about what the hell I was doing. They, they figured I'd just be able to stop. So. Okay, I like that. Um, now you generated another question, sorry. Um, you, talked <laughs> <about> the, <laughs> you talked about the family members, and um, I've noticed a very distinct difference between the Kansas City community of, of gambler, um, Gaminon, excuse me, and here. It doesn't feel as strong here where I am in New York. So do you do like gammon on Zoom meetings? Like do you do family stuff? I'm still working. I'm, I'm trying to do that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, that's been real difficult because the family members are – one of the things I've discovered is the family members are the hardest ones to reach out for help because I'm going to say this. People aren't going aren't gonna to like it. When I gambled, my whole family gambled. And they didn't even know it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like a child. Somebody, when, when a mother carries a child and they're a drug addict, that baby becomes a drug addict, an alcoholic. Because fetal alcohol syndrome, all these different things, other, thing, other people are affected. In the case of gambling, everybody around you is affected. And there's a part in the book where I basically talk about the people I don't even know. Because how many people saw me gambling uh, oh, that's like, like something good I can do. Gambling. Yeah. Now, all their family, their families have been destroyed. We think, you know, I, only th I only thought early on about the destruction to myself and the people in my immediate circle. Never thought that like a hurricane or a typhoon, that it goes out from a center and destroys everything in its path beyond anything I could imagine. All right. Well, I am going to press stop here in a second, but my commitment to you is as soon as I get my ducks in a row, I will post all of your contact info and the Facebook page. And um, I'm pretty excited about being united with you because we're on the same, you know, we have the same kind of mission and we're aligned. So um, hopefully I can contribute to your world. Um, I appreciate your time and being on the show and you know, us turning this around so quick was pretty amazing. So I do appreciate that. The one thing, one thing I will say, if you're part of my world, you're not going to like it because, because, 
you're going to love it because recovery is a good thing. I agree. And the thing is, the big thing is, you're not part of my world. You you are part of the recovery world. It's not mine to to, to own. None of it is. <laughs> That's a very humble perspective. I get you. Well, beautiful people, that was my new friend, Bernie Zittler. He is the admin or one of the admins for the Facebook group and website Problem Gambling Hope and Recovery that he mentioned. So if you're looking for some additional resources, please check him out. There is a, a screening process, so to speak, where he'll, he'll ask you some questions to let you in the room so that you're safe. I think that I was looking for a community kind of positive quote because that's a big part of what I think Bernie represents in addition to his ability to spread the message and and his passion for it. So I will continue to support and promote and advocate for participation in recovery community and community rooms. So today's quote comes from somebody whose name I can pronounce, which is pretty exciting in itself, Lance Armstrong. He says, knowledge is power, community is strength, and positive attitude is everything. Love that one. Have a great day, everybody. Stay safe. Oh!